Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On June 18th, 1775, 245 years ago, Abigail Adams took up her pen to write to her husband, John, far away in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress. The day, perhaps the decisive day, is come, she wrote, on which the fate of America depends. My bursting heart must find vent at my pen. I have just heard that our dear friend Dr. Warren is no more but fell gloriously fighting for his country, saying better to die honorably in the field than ignominiously hang upon the gallows. Great is our loss. He has distinguished himself in every engagement by his courage and fortitude, by animating the soldiers and leading them on by his own example. A particular account of these dreadful, but I hope glorious days will be transmitted to you, no doubt in the exactest manner. Joseph Warren was the family physician of the Adams family, but he was much more than that. He was arguably the most important man in the Massachusetts Rebellion that day in 1775 when he died, more so than John Adams or even John's cousin Sam Adams or John Hancock. At the moment of his death, Joseph Warren was indeed, in many ways, the most prominent of all the American rebels against the British crown. With me on the 245th anniversary of Joseph Warren's death, to discuss that death, but also his life and afterlife, is Christian Despigna author of Founding Martyr, Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's last lost hero. Uh, first hero, lost hero. So Christian, welcome to Historically Thinking. Hey, thanks, Al. So this is the 200, this is the day of the Battle of Bunker Hill on this podcast, not while we're recording, uh, which I won't tell you when that is, but this is the day that you'll hear this is the day of the Battle of Bunker Hill. So could you, let's start with the beginning first. Uh, what happened that day, uh, Joseph Warren, who was he that day, and what happened to him? So three days before this, he's nominated a major general by the Provincial Congress, and he's being urged by all his closest friends and associates not to go into the battle. But What is the battle? We should, we should the, uh, realize that not, not any, many people know about it as much as you or right, I. Right. It's about the Battle this. of Bunker Hill. So this is on June 17, 1775. And this battle has been in the works, heating up. They knew there was going to be a clash. So on this morning, Warren disregards the advice of his friends and associates and shows up to the battle. And he is offered command of the entire battle by General Israel Putnam and Colonel William Prescott, but both times he denies to take control of the battle, and he says he's there just to fight as a volunteer. And on that afternoon, the British make three charges against this redoubt where Warren has stationed himself. And on the third assault charge, it's a bayonet charge, they're successful in penetrating the fortified lines, and it basically turns into a bloodbath, and Warren is the last man to leave that redoubt because he's ensuring that all his men retreat on the sole route of retreat to Cambridge, and within the last minute of the battle, he's shot through the face and killed instantly. 
and uh, almost undoubtedly the the art for this uh, episode will be Jonathan Trumbull's iconic depiction of the Battle of Bunker Hill, which centers upon the figure of Warren, um, who he very well knew. Um, well, we, we get that's a separate uh, something that's something separate that interests me strongly right now. Right, but that's uh, that's shows Warren's death in a highly romantic and idealized way, which Trumbull knew to be false. Uh, but as he saw it, true to reality. Right. Uh, what uh, what ha- happens then to to Warren? So uh, basically, there's no confirmation of his death. I mean, because rumors are still swirling about. People are wondering: was he taken prisoner? Was he captured? Did he escape? Was he killed? And the bottom line is he's buried in a shallow ditch of about three feet next to another soldier. And we have certain letters. These are primary source letters we have that talk about Warren being beheaded on the battlefield. One was from a Benjamin Hitchborn to John Adams, and this was in December of 75, talking about a British officer named James Drew who went upon the field of battle, dug Warren up, spit in his face, cut his head off. Then there's a letter from Abigail Adams to John Adams talking about two deserting British soldiers who had mentioned um, Warren about to be beheaded, and there was a uh, British Masonic officer there who prevented that from happening. But what we do know is that Warren's body was mutilated. There's there's no doubt about that. We have primary source letters from both sides of the conflict, both British and American, talking about these British soldiers storming the walls of the redoubt and using their bayonets to stab the wounded provincials and then using the breeches of their guns to beat in their heads while they were wounded. So again, this turns into a bloodbath and uh, Warren's buried. And then he's unearthed about, I think it's nine months to the day after Bunker Hill, when the British are evacuating Boston, Warren's two brothers and a sexton go to the field, and the sexton had a general idea as to where Warren was buried, and they uh, unearth his body. He's brought to uh, King's Chapel. He lays in state at the state house for a few days, brought to King's Chapel, and then he's buried in the Minot tomb in Old Granary Burial Ground. So we'll stop. So we'll we'll stop there mm-hmm. because the anecdote tells us a couple things. Tells me a couple things, uh, which immediately I already know. But if I was uh, any other historian who didn't know anything about this, here's what I would note: I would note that this is a, a guy uh, who's not just prominent. Uh, he, he was only appointed general three days before, but already he's prominent enough so that the British actually want to mutilate him, apparently. And he's prominent enough, uh, and and colonists, the Massachusetts colonists, kind of expect that the British want to mutilate him. So that says something about his position prior to the revolution. It says something else that he's also, he's uh, lays in state in the Massachusetts State House. Well, that's impressive. And then he has this uh, very public burial. So who was he to be such a man? Uh, what was his position in the revolutionary moment up to the moment of his death, or uh, say even up to the moment where he's made this uh, made general by the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts? And that's a great question because I think we so often overlook what what, what was his role other than getting killed at Bunker Hill. And his resistance activities were happening for a decade before independence is declared. So he's involved in almost every major insurrectionary event 
in the area of Boston for those 10 years. He's involved in the Stamp Act riots. He's involved in the non-importation agreements. He's involved in the Liberty Riot, which was when John Hancock's Hancock Sloop Liberty was confiscated. He's involved in the Committees of Correspondence. He's involved in the Boston Massacre, the Tea Party, Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill. He's writing polemical arguments, political tracts, delivering Boston Massacre orations. So basically, he becomes public enemy number one. I mean, the British soldiers know exactly who he is. They know he's fomenting insurrection. They know he's an incendiary radical. He's the on-the-ground leader. They, they're all aware of this. I mean, they, they all know this, and that's why he becomes such a despised figure. And think about it. The British have suffered humiliating defeats at the battles of Lexington and Concord and Noddles Island and Grapes Island on the day of the Battle of Bunker Hill, they're basically watching their commanding officers being picked off one by one like target practice. So by the time they mount the walls of this redoubt, they are so enraged and so frustrated that it, it makes absolute sense that it would turn into a bloodbath. And basically, Warren is wearing his fine clothing. So it's it's almost as if he's wearing a bullseye that day because everyone else is wearing homespun clothing. So his 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 fine dress makes him stand out. So when he's killed, it's it's no wonder that the British are taking out their frustration and aggravation on him. So it, what he is to the British sort of he is the reverse he is to the people from Massachusetts uh he's a symbol of uh their and uh, he is the symbol of the uh, the rebel enemy to the British right and he's a symbol of the cause to the people from Massachusetts absolutely um so let's let's talk about when we're sort of moving I'm moving sort of gradually backwards now we'll start to go all then we'll go all the way back to the origin story um who was he? Where did he come from? Where was he born? All that good stuff. Right. He's born in the town of Roxbury, which is just outside of Boston. There's a little uh, neck connecting, which is basically this narrow isthmus connecting Boston to the town of Roxbury, where Warren was born. He's born in 1741. He's born to a really humble beginnings. His father is a farmer. Um his father has some standing in the community, but by no means is he one of the political elites or a wealthy gentleman. So when Warren grows up, it really is in two humble beginnings. He's the oldest of four sons, and he's educated at Roxbury Latin School, which was the precursor institution for Harvard at the time in Roxbury. And then he eventually does go – does he go to Harvard before he apprentices with anyone or does he apprentice first? No, he, he, he graduates Roxbury Latin. He's, uh, he's entering the freshman class at Harvard in 1755, uh -huh. graduates in 59, then goes for his master's degree, graduates – with his degree, his master's in 1762, and then begins his apprenticeship with Dr. James Lloyd, beginning in 62. So, where, what is what's uh, Harvard like for him when he goes I there? Mean, where, where does because Harvard ranked uh, students when they entered by their social standing? Yes, absolutely. So you're ranked, and uh, yeah, it's based on the social standing of your parents. So. 
when Warren enters Harvard, he's he's towards the bottom of that social barrel, right? He's ranked 31 yeah. in a class of 45. The amazing thing about this is that Harvard becomes Warren's social oasis. He's rubbing elbows with the elite sons of the day. So sons of the Hutchinsons, the Hallowells. And the incredible thing about Warren is that he's able to rise above his station at Harvard because although his rank never changes, he is rooming with some of the top-ranked scholars, which is extraordinary because if you're ranked towards the bottom, the basically the law is is that you will rank with similarly ranked students. So he should have been living and dorming with other lower-ranked students, but by his junior and senior years, he's ranking with two of the top scholars in his class. And mm -hmm. the top scholar of Warren's graduating class is Jonathan Trumbull. The son of the yeah. Connecticut governor. That's right. And uh, in fact, uh, when the Connecticut governor, when Jonathan Sr. had been at Harvard, he was at the bottom of the class. And when Jonathan goes there, he's number right. one, I think, yeah. number two. Uh, how did, I, I always wondered, did, did Harvard have an equation for calculating social status? How did they calculate you know, and that? that was, did you? you know, and I, when I went to Harvard and I was looking through the archives, basically the only way a student's uh, ranking would change would be if they got into some kind of trouble. So there was an instance where they had noted that a student had thrown brickbats through one of the tutor's windows and he was, he was demoted four spots. And the mm. only way a student would move up is if new information came to light about the parents' standing. So I, I remember there was one instance where a student had moved. I think the family had come from the West Indies, and then another student had come from Connecticut, and then the, um, the powers that be at Harvard had written that new information had come to light about the standing of the student's parents, so he was upgraded eight spots. So, I, I, you mm -hmm. know, there was no formula that was laid out in any of the archives, <laughs> but basically you, you, you knew that there was some kind of formula. And obviously, like any ranking, there was a lot of um, griping and resentment because some students obviously yeah. felt they should have been ranked higher. And really, that, that ranking really determined your years at Harvard because the higher ranked students got the better meals and the better service. And huh. so when you were lower ranked, you had the uh, not so nice dorm rooms and again, ranking with the other low ranked students. So it was almost, you know, again, Puritan Boston, as you know, Al, was a very highly stratified society. Uh, tribe Virginia, man. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, the entire, let's face the entire, we, it's when I always say to students that you just cannot understand how hierarchical. Uh, the 18th century Atlantic, Atlantic world was, and yep. that's leaving out China. That's leaving out China and India. And I mean, hierarchy, uh, you know, it's it's the way that people work. Right. Um, the, the fact that we think it's weird uh, says more about us than right. them. Um, well, and and it's, it's all the more amazing that Warren is able to rise above all this yeah. in that society. Well, Har yeah, Harvard kind of works in the same way that it does now. Right. I mean, it enables. Uh, who cares what you what you learn? A hundred percent. It, 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 it's it's about making connections, right. and in in many ways, uh, American higher education has always been about that. Right. It's about creating so social networks. To coin a phrase, <laughs> see what I did there. Um, the um, so he creates a very rich social network uh, when he's at Harvard, and then oddly enough, he becomes an apprentice, which is um, sort of not what you're supposed to do when you're educated at Harvard. 
you would think, but he's an apprentice for in a very particular way. So can you explain uh, how one becomes a doctor right. in 18th century New England? Right. So there's no there's no medical schools in the colonies at the time. So either you can go an apprentice at in Europe. Or you can do your apprenticeship in the States with a doctor who's done his apprenticeship over in Europe with some of the best known doctors. And, and Warren really chooses wisely in choosing Lloyd. Now, you have to realize that Warren's family did not have the money to send him to Europe to learn in the universities and learn under the masters. So Warren does the next best thing and learns under Dr. Lloyd, who did do his apprenticeship there and learn and go to the universities there. And Lloyd has trained under some of the finest doctors over in Europe. And when he comes back, he brings with him the most up-to-date medical techniques, right? He's championing uh, smallpox inoculations. He's practicing obstetrics. And Warren is learning under Lloyd. But the, and, that's, and that's one of the points, right? So how does Warren transition from this humble farming background to become a highly ranked gentleman within this uh, stratified society. And so when he's apprenticing with Lloyd, he's not just learning medicine and how to master the nuances of a bedside manner. Warren is learning how to become a gentleman because Lloyd <laughs> is very wealthy. He's very socially connected. He's friends with people like uh, Hugh Percy. So Lloyd is very, very connected, deep pockets, very knowledgeable. So Warren is learning all this under Lloyd's tutelage. And where had Lloyd gone to medical school? He had gone over in Scotland in Edinburgh. He had trained oh. under a doctor named William Smelly, who was also championing uh, obstetrical care. And, and this was the thing when Lloyd comes back, you know, obstetrics is really handled at this time by midwives. So it's not a mm -hmm. popular practice for doctors to be dabbling in, but they start to practice obstetrical care, which really also widens their business plan. So they're not just treating certain diseases, but now they're treating women who are pregnant. Now, let me uh, toss you one that is always, I can never keep this straight. What's the difference between a physician, a surgeon, and an apothecary so, in 1760? I know, uh, you're off. Yeah, okay, no, the, the thing is, Warren is, is basically all three. So a, uh, a physician is someone who's practicing uh, herbal remedies. They're, you know, when you look through Warren's medical journal, he's, he's doing everything from A to Z. He's administering his own medicinal remedies that he's making in his shop. And he's also running an apothecary shop because, you know, we have these primary source documents from his apothecary supplier, a, a, a Mr. Greenleaf. And we have 10 years of all the medical supplies Warren's buying. And I mean, he's buying everything from penis syringes to treat, um, really to, to treat sexual diseases, to buying uh, wine and choirs of paper and all kinds of remedies in between. And so Warren's also 
performing amputations and he's resetting shoulders and treating broken bones. And we know this famous account from John Quincy Adams when he when Warren saves his forefinger from amputation and, and John Quincy Adams reminisces about this when he's much older, talking about how Warren saved his forefinger from amputation. We know Warren is performing autopsies on victims of the Boston Massacre and the Christopher Sider shooting. So, you know, again, Warren is doing everything from A to Z. So when he, as it were, how long does his apprenticeship with Lloyd it last? It lasts about two years. And, it, and, and the it. timing is almost incredible because when his apprenticeship sort of comes to an end with Lloyd is when the smallpox outbreak of 1764 hits Boston. Okay. Talk about, yeah. Talk about that. Well, how, how, how eerily chilling are the similarities to that to today? And, you know, you know, Al, as you know, it's one thing to write about a historical event and it's another one to live through one that will become a major historical event. And, you know, mm-hmm. I sat there and did a lot of research on this smallpox outbreak and it's one thing to write about it and read, primary source documents and letters, but it's another one to go through something similar. And the funny thing is you can describe the town of Boston during this outbreak in 1764 without naming it, and it would almost sound like a place like New York City today. From the quarantines to the shutting of businesses to the fear to trying to find a cure to setting up these uh, remote hospitals that – they're performing the inoculations in so no one else gets sick. They talk about how virulent the disease was and how it wipes out 10 of the first 12 people. I mean, it's just incredible. So when people ask, well, how did, how did this guy, Joseph Warren, born to this humble farming family, rise to become so prominent, you can really trace it to this smallpox epidemic of 1764. Because if you imagine it now, like think about a town like Colonial Williamsburg today, the city of Williamsburg has about as many residents as Boston did in the 1760s and 70s. And when you imagine a group of doctors who are saving these lives, they become so prominent, right? This is where Dr. Mm-hmm. Joseph Warren first meets John Adams and his brother in 1764 because they come to Castle William for inoculation. So, the so what does he? What does? How do they fight this? How do they fight smallpox in 1764? Because our our idea of medicine in 1764 is that basically all, the only thing they could do was was bleed you, right? Uh, if, if we're really knowledgeable, you might say, well, they also could make you have lots of diarrhea and vomit. Right. Um, that was the extent of their pharmacopoeia. Um, but Warren's doing other things besides that. Right. And, you know, you can't really understand the 64 inoculations without understanding 1721. And this is when, mm-hmm. you know, we have this famous account of uh, Cotton Mather recruiting Zabdiel Boylston to perform inoculations. Boylston performs the inoculation on his youngest son, uh, one of his slaves and one of the slave sons, and it's successful. But at the time, this was highly controversial. People thought the pox was God's divine intervention meant to punish sinners. But once they see that these... And and someone tossed a hand grenade into Cotton Mather's front window. They didn't do that during the Salem witch trial, but they did that during the smallpox inoculation. Think about how phenomenal that is when you talk about someone like Cotton Mather and how he's 
highly regarded and respected in the community and that someone yeah. throws this firebomb into his house it doesn't it doesn't detonate but there's a note attached to it and it reads something to the fact that cotton mather you dog damn you i'll inoculate with you with this a pox to you so i mean it's so <laughs> outrageous but again this sort of paves the way so that when the 64 outbreak occurs that smallpox inoculations are more universally accepted and i mean the mortality rate in the 1721 epidemic was i think about 14 percent if people were naturally infected with the pox whereas mm -hmm. if you receive the inoculation uh purposely it was around two percent and now what happens is when you come to the hospital basically what they're doing is they're taking some of the pus from an infected person with smallpox and what they would do is get these scabs the scab would break it would ooze so what they were doing is basically scratching the skin the surface and putting some of that pus into someone who's healthy putting in it so that they would be infected but it would be to a lesser extent and yeah, they would run like, for example, a needle and thread through right. a, through a sore, and then run it through the uh, skin of the of the uh, person who's going to be inoculated. Right, they would almost take a piece of cloth and start scratching on the skin. And yeah. but you know, they had they had had knowledge of this. I know they were doing these inoculations in China, where they would actually grind some of the scabs and make it into a powder form, and they'd inhale the powder. But we mm -hmm. know that they would doing this in 1764 and his you know the scary thing was is this was no guarantee so people were going to do this voluntarily with the chance with a two percent chance that they could die now it was much <laughs> your chances were much better when you got inoculated but there's still a chance that you're going to die and look you know this is so amazing for these doctors because you know, yes, they knew that once you had gotten smallpox that you were immune, but there was no law written about that. I mean, they, I mean, I can't even imagine the hard conditions that they're working through day and night, the stench from the – I mean, I know there was an account written by someone in Europe talking about just the horrible stench from these uh, smallpox hospitals where the, the smell of the oozing pus and you think you talk to start talking about slop buckets and i mean the conditions would be grueling and these these group of doctors are doing this for months so that when the smallpox outbreak subsides these men are heralded as heroes so you can understand why now the town is putting their trust in someone like dr joseph warren so he gains their admiration and respect and so now people are placing their trust in him so he's there for the most intimate moments in someone's life right the death of a family member the birth of a child so he becomes this trusted figure and he becomes a figure who has displayed a lot of generosity because he cancels a lot of fees that his poorer patients owe him so he really is catapulted to the top of boston society at that point i mean he's catapulted uh quickly and then when you look at it, when you think about it is only there for 11 years before his death from the smallpox the 1764 outbreak to his death at bunker hill so he's got 11 years of life after he becomes a man about town a sort of local hero lo a local celebrity it's a very short yeah, and i mean think about period. that too al he's 23 and 64 i mean he's a 23 yeah. year old man who's now risen to such prominence hmm. 
what uh, how does a 23 year old now that he's become locally famous how do you get ahead in colonial in 1760s boston well here's the thing so about a few months after the smallpox outbreak subsides he marries probably the most eligible woman in boston she her father had just passed away a few months before uh, elizabeth Good. hutton and so warren and his wife inherit a small fortune so he inherits half of what's called hutan's wharf he's inheriting money he's inheriting clothing he's inheriting uh various items now warren's also establishing his own medical practice and this becomes one of the busiest practices in boston so now with this inheritance and with this booming medical business you could see how he's going to rise to this top of the uh economic circles in boston at the time so um how how does he uh, you you've gone into great detail about uh, i want you to describe describe some of the work that you did to figure out how wealthy joseph warren was because this is this is very cool uh, and it's also worth pointing out then how fast he does this right and and the amazing thing was i mean think about it now there's been how many biographies written on george washington and thomas jefferson and john adams because they've had they've left behind paper trails uh, you know to a lesser extent jefferson who burns all his personal uh, papers but warren there's such a scant paper trail around them. There's only been a handful of biographies written about him. And the ones that have been written about him, like one in 1961, basically wrote in the preface of the book that this book is intended solely at a new look at Warren's public career because a private life biography of Warren cannot be written. So that was kind of my mission to try and get at the personal life of Warren, to know the man, not just his career. And incredibly uh, lucky to find several primary source documents that described uh, a home he had purchased in West Boston, right? We didn't even know where Warren lived in Boston. Uh, I was able to find several locations where Warren lived, found out he was building a mansion estate in West Boston because all we really knew up to the point was that Warren was renting a home. But this was really antithetical to everything that Warren stood for. So Warren's a gentleman. He's wealthy. Men like that own property. They don't rent a home. So I had come across these uh, papers at the Boston Public Library talking about Warren's doing all these custom construction upgrades to this mansion estate he had purchased in West Boston. We even found out that the house that he was supposedly living in on the night he dispatches Revere and Dawes on their midnight rides was inaccurate. He had left that home in 1771 and was living in a completely different property on the night of this famous midnight ride. We also mm. knew that Warren was – we didn't know how Warren traveled. Did he have a horse? Turns out that Warren had a vermilion-colored carriage. We know vermilion's one of the most single expensive colors you can have painted. Uh, it's in high fashion in London. John Hancock has a vermilion-colored carriage. We know that Warren purchases a mourning ring when his wife passes away with, uh, I believe, it's 16 precious stones around it. If someone's buying a mourning ring, they're incredibly wealthy. Someone buying a mourning ring with all those stones, I mean, that's really top-level wealth. So how did how did he do that? I mean, how, do, how does um, 
is it because he's so diversified that he's not that his practice extends to you know the apothecary as well as the surgery? I mean, how does how does this happen? Well, it's almost like the colonial hustle, right? He so he's running the apothecary, he's making his own medicines, but we also know he's receiving a lot of financial patronage from the royal governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson. We know that he's getting. The appointment as the almshouse physician of Boston, which ran from 1769 to, I believe, 1771 or 72. And from this position, he earns almost a thousand pounds. When the Nathaniel Wheelwright debacle occurs, which was that horrific bankruptcy from that merchant in 1765, Warren is appointed as the administrator of the Wheelwright estate in 67. So he's gaining money from that. And these are, this was a position Warren had no business holding. But he's appointed that from Hutchinson. And you start to see that, really, Warren has a foot on each side of the political divide, right? Because in his early, yeah. Yeah, his early ledgers, he's treating these, quote unquote, loyalists, Tories, but he's also treating the Patriot Whigs. But by 72, you start to see that all change. So, so you're saying that up until 1772, but you had said earlier that he's a part of every uh, protest from 1765 onwards, which is incredible, um, right? Because, so, but how does this work? Right, so, I mean, because he's like you say he has, but yet he's Hutchinson's physician. He's getting he's getting official appointments. Mm-hmm. So, how does he? Is he just uh, slippery? Is Joseph Warren for Joseph Warren until he's not? I mean, what's the story here? You know, I guess it's a combination of several factors and one Warren has known Hutchinson since he was a boy right Hutchinson helped settle the probate estate of Warren's father when he dies in 1755 Warren's 14 years old Warren's also again treating the town in 64 of for the smallpox inoculations almost 10 years later Warren is the physician for the Hutchinson family, for the Hallowells, for the Olivers. And you have to realize that when Warren is at Harvard, he becomes friends with all the sons of these powerful political families. He's a physician. He's a gentleman. He's a scholar. And the amazing thing is that when the Liberty Riot happens in 68, he's basically trying to broker a deal between both sides to try and reach a peaceful agreement. Now, the incredible thing is that somehow he's still getting these appointments in the late 1760s, but yet he's such a political activist on the side of the Patriot Whigs. You almost think, I guess Hutchinson is trying to hold out some hope that he can still recruit Warren away from those Patriot Whigs. But Warren is hmm. able to live in so many different social circles. It's like these concentric circles that he's friends hmm. with all these major players. So how does Joseph Warren radicalize? You know, and here's the thing. And we had talked a little bit about this, about that letter from 1768 when Peter Oliver mentions hmm. Warren in 1768 talking about recruiting men for the Patriot Whig cause and that they were going to use the estates of these loyalists to pay for the revolution and that their goal was independence. This was a letter written by Oliver a few years after Warren's death, and he's talking about Warren being so radical. But when you read the reactions from these men after Warren's death, that's really the incredible thing, right? So we know Thomas Hutchinson had said that 
Had Warren lived, he could have become the Cromwell of North America. Peter Oliver says, had Warren lived, Washington's name would have been in obscurity. There's another British officer who says that Warren was the greatest incendiary in all America. Not, not Samuel Adams, not Hancock, not John Adams, Joseph Warren. So again, his rise to this prominence, it's, 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 it's at so many different levels, right? So he rises to become a major general. He rises to become the on-the-ground leader for the Whig movement when all the founding fathers are at the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. He's the one writing the political arguments. He's the one delivering the orations for the Boston Massacre um, annual events. He's he's there. That's the thing, Al. He's, he's there for every single event. He's not just behind the desk. He's there at Old South Meeting House the night of the Tea Party. He's there at Lexington and Concord, almost killed. He's trying to broker the deal for the Liberty Affair. He's, he's in Boston the day of the massacre. He's performing the autopsy when Christopher Sider's murdered. He's tending to the wounded victims of the massacre, performing those autopsies. I mean, you name it, and he's there, and you and you can't think of any other uh, radical patriot or political figure who who's who's involved in every single event, whether it's on the scenes and both behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. What are some? Uh, could you talk a little bit about his work? Because um, one of his chief uh, acts for the um, patriot cause is to run an intelligence network which is often seen as Paul Revere's network and he's, but network uh, Revere is in some ways kind of a, Oh, I guess a case officer working for Warren, who's the spy master. Right. And so you, you hit it on the head. We often associate Revere with this. We know that Revere had given some depositions after the battles of Lexington and Concord. And there was one letter that he wrote that he was one of 30 mechanics who would monitor British troop movements and report those movements to Dr. Warren, Dr. Church, and a few others. So we already know Warren's sort of at the top of the political and uh, Whig food chain, so to speak. But we've also gotten new evidence that has come up in recent years. In 2015, the New England Historic Genealogical Society had published the diary of Hannah uh, Crocker Mather, and she wrote in one of her diaries that she was instructed by her father to bring intelligence reports only to Dr. Joseph Warren. And she hid them in the bosom of her dress and she's ferried over on Charlestown and Warren is summoned and she gives those papers directly to Dr. Joseph Warren. I mean, we have multiple accounts talking about people feeding Warren intelligence. There's there's that famous... um, quote about a daughter of liberty unequally yoked in the point of politics who was giving Warren uh, intelligence information. Mm. And you have to realize, right, this is all before George Washington's Secret Six and Nathan Hale. I mean, this is really in 74 and 75. And it's Warren's intelligence that leads him to send Revere and Dawes on that midnight ride. Yeah, describe describe. You mentioned that earlier. I want. Could you describe the the midnight ride, sir, from Joseph Warren's perspective? What's his role in that? In the the famous ride, right? So, basically, his role is to find out when the when the uh, regulars are going to be on the march. They knew there were a couple of false alarms before this. They knew that the regulars were going to be going out to Concord to confiscate uh, arms and munitions. And basically, 
The role was also to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were staying in Lexington, who were on their really on their way to the First Continental Congress. So when Warren confirms that this is happening, he summons Revere and Dawes to his home and sends them out on the mission. This is around 10 o'clock at night on April 18th, 1775. And the incredible thing about this is, this is why they say Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, but think about it. It's Warren's hand that's manipulating this. And I shouldn't say manipulating, basically guiding these movements. What happens the next day when Warren finds out that eight militiamen have been killed on Lexington Green? He doesn't just summon other riders or summon other people. He actually leaves his office to go to the fighting. And he's almost mm-hmm. killed that day in monotomy. A uh, musket ball knocks out his hairpin on the side of his head. So we know he's mm-hmm. actively participating in the battle. We know he's helping to treat wounded soldiers and patriots. And he's never able to get back into Boston after this because thus begins the siege of Boston. So once he leaves his office that morning on April 19, 1775, he'll never return to the town. <laughs> What's he do for the remaining, what, two months of his life? Um, between the uh, Battle of uh, Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill. Well, we know he's participating in the skirmishes at Noddles and Grape Island. We know that he's writing letters to John and Samuel Adams and John Hancock at the First Continental Congress. He writes a letter to them imploring them to appoint a generalissimo at the head of an army. You know, hence, you know, a month later, they appoint George Washington to the head of the Continental Army. He's... As the he, first of all, he's the head of the provincial congress, which is basically the government, the illegal government in Massachusetts. He's head of its committee of safety. He's we know that he's fast forward thinking to that there is going to be some clash. We know this because he has books in his library. One of the books was called "Diseases Incident to Armies," and we know there's another smallpox outbreak in '75. You know, so Warren's thinking about all this. He's trying to formulate an army. He's trying to get arms. He's trying to get ammunition. He's trying to get supplies. It really is amazing when you see everything he's trying to do, giving out commissions, keeping up these letters of correspondence, giving information to the Continental Congress, who's basically waiting with bated breath on his information, because right now, Boston is the hub of the revolution, and he is the -the on-the-ground leader for what we've come to call these 60 days. Oh, could you talk about the uh, Joseph Warren Benedict Arnold connection? Because that's one of the interesting features of his uh, later life. Because uh, I always was curious. I knew that uh, Arnold gave money to support Warren's children, but I never really could figure out why. But you have a theory. You can describe so, that. So Arnold shows up right after the battles of Lexington and Concord, and he approaches Warren as the head of the Provincial Congress and the Committee of Safety with the idea to go and procure those cannon up at Fort Ticonderoga. So Warren. Warren enables this mission. He provides Arnold with arms, ammunition, money, sends him on his way. Now, Warren is obviously killed on June 17, 1775. Arnold meets up with Ethan Allen. They are successful. These are the cannon that will eventually break the siege of Boston that Henry Knox transports from Fort Ty to Boston. But the amazing thing is, is that when Warren is killed, he leaves behind four orphaned children because his wife had died two years earlier. He's engaged to a woman named Mercy Scully. 
she's basically caring for the children out in Worcester, Massachusetts, where Warren had sent them for their own safety. And basically, they're abandoned at that point. I mean, obviously, the, the founding fathers have uh, bigger fish to fry. But Arnold is providing money for the children. Now, the incredible thing about this is, and I think we can understand because Arnold loses his wife right after the Battle of Bunker Hill. And he's left with several orphan children himself. So Arnold is providing these funds to Warren's children from his own pocket. Now, the amazing thing is, is that we had been told it was $500. And I came across a series of letters that Arnold and Mercy Scully had been writing back and forth. And there was one letter in particular that is dated July 1780. And there we have Mercy Scully thanking Benedict Arnold for everything he's done for Warren's children. Now, this is five years after Warren's death, weeks before uh, Arnold's treason is uncovered. And there is part in the letter that details how much money Arnold has given Mercy Scully, and it was almost 3,000 pounds, not $500. So in today's money, that would be somewhere around $700,000. And it's just an amazing find to uncover this about someone who's been accused of putting coin over country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No wonder why he needed money. Uh, He's giving it away to the the Warren orphans. Um, The... uh, Let's let's talk about the afterlife um, because this is uh, a book of uh, there's a lot of might have beens uh, that you've already said a few, but um, we've described the um, sort of the the exhumation of Warren's body from Bunker Hill. Mm-hmm. It go, goes down to the church uh, to and then what happens because there are some weird pictures yeah. uh, that in your book right. and that are well, famous for early American historians uh, some very strange pictures of, of uh, that involve Warren's afterlife and so we had mentioned that he's buried in the old granary burial ground and he stays there from 1776 through 1825 now Warren's nephew John Collins Warren exhumes the body from that tomb in old granary burial ground and they move him basically across the street to an underground crypt at saint paul's church and warren stays there until about 1855 and at this time there's a movement towards garden cemeteries they don't want to be putting people in the city they talk, you know there's talk about all these charnel houses and miasmas that are polluting the air and making people sick so his nephew buys a plot at uh, forest hill cemetery which is about a 500 square foot underground crypt and basically his nephew gathers a number of his relatives, his father, uh, his his first wife, uh, one of the other brothers, and they put everyone in this crypt at Forest Hills. And, you know, there's been some controversy about exactly what year and where does Warren's body stay for the year. But we, we know that in 1855 that the body's exhumed and they take these daguerreotype images of Warren's skull. And it clearly shows the bullet hole entering the front of his face just below his eye and exiting the back of his skull. But we know that the body was put back under St. Paul's until 
August of 1856 when it is finally removed to Forest Hill Cemetery. And we know this because of the uh, diary of his nephew and of his nephew's son who continues that diary. So they actually are detailing the dates when the body's removed. They're moving it to Forest Hills. They talk about the, the torrential rains that were happening the day it happened. So it's just, it's really something to, to read these diaries and these journals to just get an insight as to what was happening. Let's uh, talk about you. Uh, how did you get interested in this topic? I know that you've been working on it for decades, partly because life was in the way, but um, but also because it took a long time uh, to go from your initial interest to piecing together the private life of Joseph Warren and, and put, putting that together with what was known about the public life. Right, and, and really, you know, I had read a book that I had purchased, I think it was in the mid nineties um, that we had gotten at a secondhand bookstore that was written by Warren's niece. And that really is what started to pique my interest. And then um, uh, David Hackett Fisher wrote a terrific book, Paul Revere's Ride. And you know, you saw Warren's name kind of peppered throughout the pages, but that's all it was. It was a sentence here, it was a sentence there. And I did a senior thesis on Warren when I was a student at Columbia University under my uh, mentor, Dr. Eric Foner. And when I had finished writing the thesis, it was about 80 pages, he said, you know, you should really think about doing more research because you found a lot of stuff and maybe writing the, the, the definitive biography about him. And really it became, <laughs> it became, uh, you know, it started out as just, I wanted to, I wasn't even thinking about a book out. I was just really curious about finding more information because I had found things no one else had. And so, so you, you had the bug. I had you, the you, bug. You became, yes. a, you became a hunter. And, and, then, yeah, and a hunter. then what really uh, sort, sort of kicked it in high gear was discovering the fact that he had direct living descendants because everything published on Warren for the past 120 so odd years said that his direct descendants had become extinct. And so I was fascinated when I when I when I was able to contact the direct descendants, and they just had a treasure trove of material, culture pieces, and family trees and heirlooms, and it really just opened up another window into Warren's personal life, hearing about the stories. And so, you know, you know, as a researcher, that when you come across something, you know that feeling you get, but it was magnified by not only finding this piece of information or whatever it might have been, but being able to share it with the descendants who were equally as excited and, and thrilled to find out more, more, more about their ancestor. Yeah, it was, uh, that's such a great part of it, your story. I remember when you first told me about that, my eyes popped open. Uh, of course, so few of us content, uh, meet descendants of people that we're interested in, um, can you talk about those descendants? Because uh, before we start talking, uh, one of them that you had introduced me to is uh, an amazing guy who unfortunately just died very suddenly yes. uh, in the last week or two. Could you talk about him and, yes. and about the other Warren descendants? Because it's a uh, it, it's some kind of argument for like genetic fate, maybe because it's an interesting family. Well, you know, I just have to say I'm heartbroken over the news, and he really this is George C. Wildrick. He's Warren's fifth great grandson. He was the family historian. He, he passed away very suddenly. Um, I know the family's devastated, but uh, I mean, I'm just heartbroken because for years, George and I spoke on the phone several times a week, sharing information, talking about Warren, different theories. You know, he was an instrumental part 
in the book. He was an instrumental part in my motivation. Uh, he connected me to other family members. He, he really was one of the garden, guardians of, of Warren's legacy, but he was also part of this uh, military dynasty that Warren began. And George <laughs> was a uh, West Point graduate. He was an Army officer. Um, there's been a Warren descendant involved in every major American conflict since the Civil War to the present day. Uh, I know George's brother had passed away from Agent Orange cancer. Uh, he was a Green Beret during uh, Vietnam. So, I mean, there really is this amazing uh, dedication to military service from from Warren's descendants. And, you know, we always talk about the medical dynasty because there's been nine generations of Harvard doctors. But what's gotten lost from the direct descendants is is this impressive military service. And, yeah. And- well, I, I, I think it's so it's so crazy that they're both doctors and soldiers in every generation of the Warren family. Right. It's uh, it's really it's really freaky, actually. Yeah. Um, amongst people, which I, I guess I didn't realize this either, but amongst people who didn't necessarily know they were related to Warren either. Right. I mean, that was some of them were like, oh, am I related? I don't know if I'm related. And then it turned out they were. Yeah. I mean, the uh, funny thing is, or am I confused? No, I might be confusing that with Daniel Morgan yeah, descendants. Think, yeah, maybe I, the Daniel Morgan descendants. I mean, I think there's about 30 living uh, direct descendants. When I say direct descendants, and I have to be careful because, you know, a descendant is not a relative. So when I say this, mm-hmm. it's. When I say about direct descendants, there's also a line through Warren's brother, John, who is that military dynasty, but it's it's through the brother. Mm-hmm. But this is Warren's direct line about the military. And there's also, you know, I also have to mention a Dr. Carolyn Matthews, who's the fifth great granddaughter of Dr. Joseph Warren, and she is the trustee of the Copley painting that's in Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And this hmm. this was this is George's cousin. So, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing because they, they, they were also very proud of of Dr. Joseph Warren and, and really did what they could to uh, promote his legacy. And, and again, George was the family historian. It's a great loss. I mean, it, it, it's a great loss because George was so active in, as you know, going to the conferences and trying to be a part of the Bunker Hill ceremonies on an annual basis. I mean, he's very approachable, wrote some articles. I know he was working on a bunch of pieces uh, currently that were about Warren. So it really, uh, it's, a, it's a big loss. It really is. Uh, as we close up, could you talk about, you did amazing things to find um, documents and uh, you found stuff that people thought couldn't possibly exist anymore. Uh, you've mentioned several of them already. Um, what was the reason for that? Just sheer bloody-minded persistence? Um, you know, in a previous generation, we would say, I mean, well, actually, you probably did use a lot of shoe leather on this or wore out a lot of sneakers because this was not all by any means. Very few of this was discovered on – very little of this was discovered online. Right, yeah. And it, I mean, it becomes – you know – it became almost like a personal mission. And I wanted to try and tell, you know, especially after meeting George and his family, you want to try and tell, you don't want to whitewash the history or sanitize Warren's character. You want to tell the most accurate story that you can. You know, the goal was if Joseph Warren read this biography to have him say, yeah, you, 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 you got it right. Or you came as close as possible. But yeah, I mean, I became, really the word I would describe is relentless. I mean, it was a lot of it was luck, but I was determined. And I just, 
you know, it's easy once you find something to say, you see, stuff is out there. Or you hear a story like, you know, I'll give you an example with the person finding the Declaration of Independence behind the painting. You know, you hear these things and then it happens to you. You find this little diamond in the rough and you say, you know, there's got to be more stuff out there. You know, people have been wrong. The, the descendants exist. You know, I found this. And, and one of the great things I found was the portion of Warren's lost medical ledger that I purchased at auction. I mean, that to me was unbelievable because it proved that that ledger existed. Tell that story because um, that's, a, that's a great story. So, yeah. the, so what happened was there were, there were pieces of Warren's one medical ledger that were being given out in the 1860s by a Dr. Ellis Ames. He was a big collector. He was a lawyer in Massachusetts. The vandal <laughs> way is, but go on. You know, we don't know how he came across them, but what – Part of this lot was this piece of the missing ledger, and it actually documented Warren treating Christopher Monk, who becomes the sixth victim of the Boston Massacre. He dies in 1780s, uh, 1780 from complications of the wounds from the massacre, and Warren is treating him gratis. So again, it's just one other link connecting Warren to the massacre. And, and most people don't know there was a sixth victim of the Boston Massacre because he dies six years later. But... But what came with this lot was a letter from the 1860s talking about these fragments of the medical ledger. And Ellis Ames is talking about how rare even the signature of Warren is at the time, how there's really no information on him. And you know what's so funny? The first biography that came out on Warren, the first full real biography was published in 1865. And the former governor of Massachusetts reads it and says, this is more of a life of Samuel Adams than it is of Dr. Joseph Warren. So it just shows you really how obscure and how little primary source documents they were pertaining to Warren, even 100 years after his death. So I think that's why a lot of people never really uh, attempted to do much on Warren, because you know, there's no guarantee you're going to have enough for a book. And that was the thing, you know, maybe it would turn into an article, maybe a magazine piece, but will you have enough information for a book? And I mean, I think, I think it was over five dozen new discoveries I was able to uncover about Warren. Hmm. Well, my guest today has been Christian Despigna, the Columbo of the archives. <laughs> He's the author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Lost Hero. Christian, always good to talk to hey, you. I really appreciate it, Al. Thank you so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.